The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see you tonight. Sorry about my voice. I have a cold that I'm recovering from, so <clears throat> you might notice me struggling a little bit. So this week we're beginning a new subject, uh, moving on from truthfulness into resoluteness or determination. <clears throat> and uh, if you read ever uh, the traditional discourses of the Buddha, you'll be, you probably won't be, but it's amazing how often the Buddha talks about effort or energy. And determination, of course, is a flavor of this this um, necessity of applying our mind in a particular way. <clears throat> I mean, it's pretty clear that human beings make a lot of effort. I mean, all of us, we make a lot of effort in life to do this, to do that, to get ahead, to be liked, to avoid doing things that might be harmful. So there's a lot of effort being made in general. And this particular kind of effort that the Buddha or that this particular path of training is asking for is a, is a more refined kind of effort. So even though we're using a word like resoluteness and we'll be talking about determination for the next several weeks, we want to make sure that we don't confuse it with a more self-centered, willful kind of effort that we make all the time in life. I'll teach you, <laughs> you know, like if we want to get even with somebody. I'll teach you to insult me or to embarrass me. We can put a lot of energy to sort of prove to somebody that we're sort of not who we think, uh, n not who they think we are. But are we willing to make this more refined kind of effort to be aware and to learn moment by moment, to be aware of the mind, to use the mind to know the mind? And the reason that it requires such a tremendous effort is our habit is, of course, to be distracted. We're so absorbed into our diff different reactions to life, to experience, it pulls us out, in a sense, into the external world. I mean, these are just words. It's, there's not really an external world and an internal world. But it pulls us out into our ideas about things, our ideas about what we want, what we need to prove to somebody, what we're afraid of. <clears throat> and in a sense, it keeps us from doing this basic fundamental research, using the mind, to know the mind. So to turn this corner, to reorient the mind in this way, it takes tremendous determination. So much of our culture, not just now, probably also in the past, is about pulling us away from this practice. 
This is why throughout history, regardless of the particular culture or religious, spiritual orientation, why men and women have found it necessarily necessary to simplify their lives, to go off on retreat, to put aside time every day, all the different ways, you know, to become a monastic, all the different ways human beings have found to uh, express this quality, this wholesome determination, not to be swept away with the flow of our culture, which is toward distraction, toward self-centered distraction, self-centered drama. And we can get confused because as we, you know, as we try to be a human being that doesn't suffer so much, we've gotten, most of us have gotten pretty good at noticing what self-centered dramas create a lot of tension, a lot of suffering, and self-centered dramas that don't create so much suffering. But this path is like beyond that. Even though that's relatively wholesome, you know, to abandon trips, self-centered trips that are really heavy and replace them with self-centered trips that aren't so heavy. In a way, wholesome therapy does this. So I'm not putting it down. It's really useful to sit down with a good friend or with a therapist or on your own and to notice what kind of stories you keep repeating in your mind and to notice how heavy they are. And in reflecting and <clears throat> trying to be more direct and honest with yourself, to replace those relatively heavy stories with other stories that maybe are <clears throat> more inclusive or <clears throat> in any case less afflictive. have less of a charge, have less constriction with them. But the effort we're making here in practice is to be not dependent on having any story or any meaning about who I am, what I am. Because, you know, like, if I asked you now, if you do right now, just pay attention to your hand, wherever it is, touching whatever it's touching, you just put your awareness in a very direct, simple way in the experience of the hand, feeling maybe some experience of coolness or warmth or some direct experience of contact or pressure. To the degree that the mind actually opens to the experience of the hand, to that degree, the thought of self and whether I'm having a good life or a bad life, or whether I'm a good person or a bad person, it has absolutely no meaning. And this is true regardless of how we open to the present moment. Turning our attention to the present, to things as they are, is a radical abandonment of everything that's self-centered. Even if we were to notice a thought, a self-centered thought arising, you know, I'm better than you, or I'm not as good as you. If we would notice that with mindfulness, we would notice it's just a thought. It's not that we're oblivious to the content of the thought, but what would be, what would stand out in terms of present moment attention, it's just a thought here and now. It's just this mental activity of thinking, being known, arising and ceasing. Because in order for the next thought to come, that thought has to cease. You know, just like in order for this sensation in the hand to be known, the previous sensation that was known 
had to cease. So this is this is really the place for this determined, resolute effort is in the not forgetting. Not forgetting that the mind can be used in this way to be present instead of where the mind is in the habit to go, which is to be in our stories about ourselves, in our stories about others, in our stories about us together. We live in our stories about things. That's where we live. That's where we reside. And there's really no escape because wherever we are in our stories about things, they always lead to more stories, right? You know, and and again, I want to just re-emphasize that it doesn't mean on that level of living in stories, it doesn't mean that there aren't worse stories and better stories. <clears throat> and there's a lot of healing work that can be done just in terms of reorganizing the kind of stories we get lost in. But the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha and this path of awakening, this path of using awareness or mindfulness to transform our lives is really a kind of turning the corner, understanding the limitations of even the most wholesome stories, let alone all the unwholesome stories we entertain. Even the more wholesome stories are limited and come with stress the stress to maintain them, the stress to hold on to them. So I want to share from Sylvia Borstein's book that we've been following the last year and a half now as we cover these 10 wholesome qualities of heart called the 10 paramis, 10 perfections of the heart. So I think we're on number seven now, determination or resoluteness. <clears throat> and Sylvia's just recalling this traditional formulation or way of talking about each of these. The practice of determination develops the habit of persevering or starting over. Or remembering, we could say. That's what starting over is, really. For a person on this path, this path of mindfulness, the real effort, like I mentioned a moment ago, is the effort to remember or the, the effort to start over in remembering that this is how it is. So it's really a dropping out of our addiction or our um, fixation on our thoughts about things, our ideas about things, into a remembering, oh, thoughts are just thoughts. This is here and now, and it's like this. It's that kind of radical deconstruction or simplification the mind is deconstructing the uh, <clears throat> complexity of our story and all the meaning that the story seemingly provides. It's deconstructing that into what is actually being known in the moment. Oh, thinking is being known. Emotion, whatever the charge is, that's being known. Sensation, of course, is being known. Sounds are being known. Really simple, actually. It's never more complicated than those six things. You know, the five physical senses and then cognition. What experience is, is never more than that. Our whole world is made up of the five physical senses and the awareness of mental activity. 
as, as big as it seems, as complicated as, as it seems, the world is never more than that. Now, we don't, that's the only world we know. We only know the world of five physical senses and cognition. But just our rejection of that idea right now tells us how addicted we are to our thoughts about things. Like, for example, the thought of being at common ground. It feels so real, common ground. But actually, whatever it is, it's never more than what we're seeing. You know, we see a room, what we call a room. But that's an experience here and now. And maybe we recognize people that we always see at this place we call common ground. You know, but that's again, it's just seeing. Maybe it has a particular smell. <laughs> and that's a smell right now. And then the certainty, no, but I'm at common ground. Well, that's just a thought in the mind now. So I'm not saying there isn't a real common ground, but I'm just saying to get to know our experience, to be honest with ourselves about experience, is a radical deconstruction. It doesn't mean it's wrong to form ideas about things. But we don't want to be confused by the ideas we form about things. Like, I have an idea about my wife, Wynne. But I, if I get confused and think that's who she is, well, then things don't work so well in any of our relationships. Because it's like we stop showing up. And we, we think we know. Well, I know common ground. I know when. I know who I am. And we fix things. And our life, in a sense, gets a little dead, a little rigid. So this is the persevering that it's talked about in the tradition. The practice of, de of determination develops the habit of persevering, starting over or remembering. That's what I'm adding to that. By seeing clearly into the cause of suffering so that the resolve to change the habits of mind becomes spontaneous. This is really important. The Buddha understands that the real motivation for change comes from seeing suffering. <clears throat> Otherwise, we don't really have a motivation to change. If our understanding, our experience is that things are fine, why would anybody come to a meditation center? There's some sense that either things aren't fine or that they could be better. That makes us take up any kind of reflective practice, contemplative practice. Contemplative practice just means we're not willing to go with the flow. We're, in a sense, willing to go back to basic research. Wait a minute. What's really going on here? So we're not literally, we're not taking literally whatever our mind says about things, but we're, in a sense, taking a step back <clears throat> and reflecting more directly at what's going on. What do I really know? What can I really know about experience? And then we see, you know, we notice the experience of suffering and it creates a resolve to change the habits of the mind because we see the suffering being born out of how our mind is relating. And then the second piece of this formulation and, you know, resoluteness is supported by validating through direct experience the possibility of a peaceful mind. So this is the opposite. So there are two sources of the energy that it takes to be resolute or to be determined. One is seeing directly the suffering, 
And the other is seeing the possibility of peace or ease or freedom that can arise, a peaceful mind. And then based on seeing the suffering that arises due to the habits of mind, based on experiencing the freedom or peace that arises when the mind is not fixed, not caught by our ideas of things, by mental activity, not addicted to mental activity, due to feeling, experiencing the suffering, seeing and experiencing the peace, the mind becomes tenacious about this practice, about being present. So again, determination isn't a kind of struggle. In fact, it's really just the opposite. Mindfulness is never a struggle. That's not exactly right, but it, mindfulness doesn't work when there's a lot of tension. Mindfulness arises, or that radical presence arises out of balance, not the sort of tense struggle. The tense struggle is exactly what the strategy that we've used over and over and hasn't worked over and over again. <coughs> Most of our lives are defined by replacing one way of struggling with another way of struggling. You know, we've struggled with our environment, and then when that doesn't work, we struggle with ourselves, thinking, I'm wrong, I'm bad, because I'm not happy. And then we go back to struggling with our environment. Maybe it's the environment's fault. You know, maybe it's my wife's fault. Maybe she doesn't treat me right. Or maybe it's the fact that my body, my genetics are off and I get sick, you know. So one way or another, we blame and struggle. And we generally move from one kind of struggling to another. <clears throat> and it doesn't really work, which is why eventually human beings tend to gravitate toward more contemplative practice, which is a movement away from a blind struggle to wondering, does struggle work? Right? That's the first question, you know, that we learn being reflective or contemplative. We see how ineffective struggling is. That sort of, it's a kind of violence, aggressiveness, uh, juxtaposed to giving up and being resigned and depressed. So <clears throat> the tenacity is really a, a confidence that awareness and the understanding that arises from paying attention in this balanced way makes a real, has a real effect on our lives. Now, you may not have a lot of confidence in that right now, but I guarantee it, really, I, I think I, I say this with a lot of confidence. If you cultivate this practice, you will find a lot of confidence arising in your life, in your mind, about the power of mindfulness to transform things. It's like the universal solvent, you know, when you think about how powerful water is, you know, the different ways that water have eroded things or wind have, has eroded things. Like you look at the Grand Canyon. I'm assuming most of that happened through the power of water to erode the rock. Yeah, it's amazing how, if you've been there and you look down, it's literally a mile down, <clears throat> and to think, wow, 
It's amazing, the power of water. But actually, awareness is even more powerful. You know, when we're patient and we keep bringing this mindful attention to things as they actually are, everything dissolves. Anything hard, anything separate, any kind of boundary dissolves. It's it's sort of, in the spiritual sense, it's the universal solvent. Any kind of sense of self, any quality of apartness or separateness depends on ignorance. And, you know, it makes so much sense. What can replace ignorance? We're clear seeing. I mean, that's what mindfulness is. This is how the Buddha sets up our whole existential situation. The problem is human beings misperceive and then live based on our misperceptions. And so the path of practice the Buddha set in motion is the opposite of misperception, which is to pay attention. Clear seeing is what resolves all the suffering that arises due to misperception. And when we look at the world, actually it begins to make so much sense. You know, with a little distance, it's pretty easy to see how the lack of clear seeing leads to tremendous suffering and injustice. You know, all the inequities in the world and poverty and all of that arises because human beings, we are misperceiving what's going on. And then we make choices based on our misperceptions. Well, what happens if we would undermine that tendency to misperceive by cultivating clear seeing, that radical, that simple, clear, open, loving attention to things as they actually are, with no agenda. There's no agenda in mindfulness, right? So this is, uh, this is where we bring this tenacious, wholehearted, resolute, determined effort. This is uh, Sylvia now talking in, uh, more directly from her own practice. She says, each time I feel the pain of being reborn into suffering through inattention, by falling prey to lust or being overwhelmed by anger, I am re-inspired in my determination to dismantle the obstacle course of confusion that seems to trip my mind at every turn to dismantle the obstacle course of confusion that seems to trip my mind at at every turn. So another way I think she could have said that is, I'm re-inspired in my determination not to be confused by my life experience. That's really what we're determined to do. Whether we're sitting formally, you know, when we're sitting in meditation, we just have a relatively simple stream of experience not to be confused by, not to practice not being confused by, as opposed to when we're out in the world, where our stream of experience is more complicated, more likely to be confusing. But the practice is exactly the same. When we're sitting and we're with the body or we're with the breath or we're with sounds as an anchor in our meditation practice, still... Moment by moment, it's possible to be confused by the pain in the knee, by the thought that arises, even confused by the breath, the sensations of the in-breath or the out-breath. We can take it to be more than what it is. 
Like I can take my in-breath to be my in-breath, as opposed to sensation. Right? I mean, what is an in-breath? It's just touching, if you're feeling it here. Or it's just movement, if you're feeling your belly expand. And But if we get confused, we start thinking it's my breath. And as soon as I think it's my breath, I can think, is it a good breath or a bad breath? Is it the way it should be? Right? Once we start getting confused by our experience, confusion tends to lead to more confusion. So whether we're sitting or out in the world, we're practicing you know, dismantling the obstacle course of confusion, not being confused by our lived experience. That, and now I'm continuing reading. That seems to trip my mind at every turn. Each time I stay successfully balanced, not confused, each time I recognize that hurdles of temptation are startling but not substantial, I become more confirmed in my faith. And I like this sentence too. Each time I recognize that hurdles of temptation are startling but not substantial. Right? So, you know, we're sitting and we're there, let's say, with some continuity of mindfulness with the breath. And then the knee hurts, you know, and the pain arises in the filled space of the mind. We know pain. And let's say there's a confusion. Because we get startled by the pain, you know, there's pain and it and it shocks us in a way. It, it interrupts that balance that knows that things are just what they are. And in that disturbance, we start taking the pain and the need personally. We start telling ourselves a story. That pain is dangerous to me. Sure, I can handle it now, but how about in 10 minutes? I better do something now. Why do I always get pain in my knee? You see, and it just goes on and on. So what we need to see about our lived experience, whether sitting or out in the world, is that our lived experience is often startling. We see things that startle us, like we see a really attractive person, and that is startling for us. It sort of shocks us. So we see something ugly that we don't like. We see poop on the sidewalk or something from a dog, and it shocks us, you know. But just because things, life, experience is startling, doesn't mean it's substantial. It's like we can see the dog poop, and we can notice being the, being startled, but we don't need to imagine it being more substantial than what it is. It's just seeing and maybe smelling. That's all it is. And then if we have a thought of somebody who's not picking up after their dog, <coughs> that's just a thought in the mind. No, it doesn't mean that we, you know, we can join a committee at the local neighborhood group to put signs up around the neighborhood about picking up after your dog or something like that. But it doesn't need to be some addictive, reactive pattern based on not seeing things clearly. It can be a very conscious decision that in the great scheme of things, this is how I want to spend my life energy, you know, making sidewalks free of dog poop. And actually, I don't think that's a necessarily bad thing for people to do with their life. So I'm not putting it down. But we just don't want to do it blindly out of anger, out of rage. It can be really a, a balanced thing. It can be an expression of freedom and ease and love and not hatred or aversion or irritation. 
Sylvia finishes this paragraph, beginning this chapter on determination, by saying, um, after she says, uh, I recognize that hurdles of temptation are startling, but not substantial. I become more confirmed in my faith. Peace is possible, and I can experience it. Perseverance, the hallmark of determination, becomes automatic. Excuse me. <clears throat> so this is some, could be some of our homework this week, is to, you know, really learn from our painful lessons when we lose that resoluteness and we keep, in a sense, you know, stubbing our toe by reacting to life, reacting in ways that cause us some constriction or some pain. And we just go, oh, suffering again. And and to use the suffering to ignite the possibility of not suffering. Oh, does it have to be this way? There's a real sort of turning point with suffering. Either we suffer, you know, we get caught in some reactive pattern. The heart, mind, body gets tight, gets constricted. And then what do we want to do usually? Well, we just want to deny that pain. And we struggle to get away from it by, you know, finding something pleasant to absorb into. But suffering can also be a wake-up call. It can be the cause for the mind to go, does it have to be this way? Does this mind need to be weighed down in the way that it's weighed down right now? Does it need to be tight in the way that it's tight right now? Does it need to be reactive in the way that it's reactive right now? So we're looking directly in the moment, not theoretically, but we're looking directly in the moment. Like if you're irritated by the temperature in the room right now, you know, instead of struggling on the level like, why don't they turn the air conditioning on or something like that, you could be looking at the experience of irritation itself and the the experience of the heart, body, mind being constricted or burdened. And you could be examining it in a balanced way with resoluteness based on the faith that maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe the weight that I'm experiencing doesn't have to be this way. And this is the kind of confidence, I mean, that I can talk, speak to directly, that I have tremendous confidence suffering doesn't have to be this way. And in a way, this is a a good expression of my sitting and daily life practice. It's, It's like having radar for suffering. As soon as I tune into suffering, this sort of voice of wisdom arises, maybe not so, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. And that sort of uh, initiates a kind of investigation, a sort of balanced, wholesome, confident opening, contemplation, reflection on the experience of suffering right here and now to see if it actually is what it appears to be. Often leading to the experience of suffering ceasing. We've all had this experience. It's just a question of how systematically we're having this experience, how often we're having this experience, and how much confidence we have in the capacity of the heart to be free, no matter the conditions. See, now often a conventional human being, we think we can be free when things are just right. But can this heart, body, mind be free when things aren't right, like when you're sick? 
like I am now, you know. And there's a headache, and there's this, <clears throat> and there's this pressure, and you know, what is the way to relate with freedom to this experience? That's really the question for us. So we want to pay attention to the the dukkha, but we also want to notice when the mind or heart body is unrestricted, when it isn't burdened. We want to really know what that feeling is like, that experience of release is like. Because it will give us, it will be like uh, uh, create the uh, sort of memory that helps to highlight moments of suffering. Like if all we know, if all we remember are the experience of being tight, being constricted, being upset, being in a hurry, being hopeful, being excited, which are all different flavors of contraction, well then it's like that's all we know is contraction. So one of the real forces behind what that allows for this wholesome effort, this faith, this power of confidence, is we have to have a sense of what's possible. We have to highlight those natural moments when the heart is in the moment, awake, but unburdened in that moment. What is that experience like? So we'll take some time now. We have about 20 minutes. It would be nice to share, for people to share experiences of determination, of this wholesome determination to pay attention, to be present. And speak a little bit about the kind of uh, confidence and what that's born out of. Like the confidence born out of seeing that reacting doesn't work, that reacting makes things worse. Or the confidence that peace or release is possible. And of course, any questions that you have about this topic of determination that seem relevant? So what comes to mind? Yes, Tom. Well, um, I read something or heard something from a master of some Buddhist that's been doing for a long time. And, uh, Maybe a little louder, Tom. Huh? Maybe a little louder. Oh, okay. Uh, I read something or heard something from, from a master of Buddhist uh, high quality, if you will, that said if you're, if you're trying to trying to avoid suffering, you're already suffering. And I, I, I just think that was something that's so, so relevant to my life. And it's, uh, and it gets to a point where I just said, I don't think this, you know, I mean, I'm not giving up. But it's, it's, uh, it's a person that's in my life that uh, I, I just, uh, <clears throat> I, I, I'm, I'm, just waiting for the shoe to fall, so to speak. I'm waiting for that. I'm trying to prevent not to lose the friendship that we have. And uh, when I have a thought of separateness, and when I when I when I have that clear, you know, nothing is permanent, lost. Or life and that kind of thing. When I can get and feel and be in that, see that clearly, I can feel freedom right away. 
What makes it go away, do you think? Have you observed? Like you have a moment of freedom, a moment of release. How do you lose that? What? No, no, but I'm, I'm not asking so much as a question, more as a, like an ongoing reflection for yourself or for all of us. Like, this is, a, this is relevant. Like, not just in moments of suffering do we want to pay attention, but we want to pay attention in moments of release, too, to see how that falls away. Because something comes in where the heart gets constricted again. And that would be relevant. Like, what thoughts arise in your mind that you grab a hold of, causing you to lose that sense of freedom? Well, I, you know, um, story of my life. But I understand what you're saying. And, and when it originally came to me, um, I don't know. I know some, a couple of the thoughts that came to me. Um, and now when I start feeling that pain, when I'm aware of that I'm, I'm there again, mm-hmm. I just know those couple thoughts that I had at one time, not that long ago, mm-hmm. worked. So I try to, you know, try to. Right. And 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 one of and you can appreciate that one of the the values of those moments of insight is now when the heart is in its more conventional <coughs> and constricted way, you know it doesn't have to be this way. It is this way. So we're not in denial that the mind is irritated or that the mind is struggling. But there's some like voice of wisdom that understands it doesn't have to be this way. That's not a small thing. That's a really important thing because when we're irritated and struggling in life, but we don't have that voice of wisdom, then we take it for granted. We think, well, that's just how it is. We're suffering human beings and that we just got to put up with it. And we stop looking deeply into life because we don't feel there's a value. This is what I meant at the beginning. Like human beings are willing to work, but we need to have a sense that there is value. So kind of goes back to your opening statement, Tom. You know, trying to get out of suffering is, you're right, it is a, can be a cause for suffering, but we do need a sense of goal. You know, as a human being, we need a sense of goal. The Buddha talks about a goal. He talks about Nibbana, the end of suffering. So we do want, we need that orientation. Otherwise, we fall into resignation and giving up. So we do have a goal, that suffering is optional. All of us are interested in this. Some of us maybe don't have a lot of confidence, think that suffering is not optional. You just got to deal with it. Now, this, the Buddha's not talking about, you know, you're not going to stub your toe or you're not going to experience loss, like you brought up, Tom, but that the suffering, the mental suffering related to stubbing your toe or losing a loved one, that's optional. The mind, the heart, doesn't need to react to the ordinary ups and downs, the inevitable ups and downs in life. There can be a radical 
releasing into life, into the very life that's being lived, not a life of reacting and tightening because of the ups and downs, but a life of releasing into. It's a real life of freedom because it's like a free fall. The heart, mind, body, it's falling freely into our life, into this life moment by moment. And what is experienced is both the natural ups and downs, but a continuous like free fall, which is the experience of freedom. In that lived experience, the ups and downs of an ordinary life. Other thoughts people have about this topic? Yeah, Cynthia, nice to see you. Um, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm an area where I've been tripped up a lot with this is um, with other people's suffering. And um, <coughs> I, I see some progress for myself that with my husband, when he is upset about something, I get very reactive and get defensive. And I'm now more aware of, oh, he needs some space. <coughs> And not taking it personally. But I know um, it was, for example, with, with my mom, who's, who has Alzheimer's, and um, who's, I sense, in, I mean, she, she expresses it, it is in a lot of pain of losing her memory. You know, that after somebody who's on the corner, <coughs> money, I don't know, you know, I, yeah. I've been a little. Well, we can model happiness and model for that person in that moment. We should do our best to model how to be free in one's lived experience. So when you're with your husband and he's in a difficult place, then right then and there you get an opportunity to model how he might relate to being in his difficult place by you modeling how to be in your difficult place of being close to somebody you love who's suffering or being close to your mom who's suffering. So like, that's what we can really do. First and foremost, the best thing you can do with your mom, your husband, or the person on the corner <coughs> is to be free in that experience and not to be detached. So freedom isn't a, a detachment. It's a, the freedom is precisely in the intimacy in being connected with your mom and her difficulty losing her memory and your husband and his difficulty dealing with his life. So being being intimate, being close, but manifesting freedom, manifesting the mind that's not reacting and struggling with what it's experiencing. So how can you be there? Intimate, responsive, engaged, but not suffering. I mean, it's a practice. And, and so the resoluteness, you know, going back to determination, it's, it's really based on our experience from suffering in life and from having moments of freedom in life. Based on our experience, we are determined to practice being free. Because it's the best thing for us, it's the best thing for everybody else. If we want to be free, we have to practice being free in every moment. And see, what happens in that moment is we get startled, like going back to Sylvia's statement, we get startled by seeing my mom or your mom or seeing your husband 
we see that suffering and we get startled and that throws us off balance and then we get caught in the story and then once we're in the story part of the story is saying this shouldn't be this way this has to be fixed or at least modified and then we're immediately in a defensive stance with life you know it's like me my ego against the infinite web of causes and conditioning and causes and conditions you know well who's going to lose <laughs> I mean, things are the way they are. The, you know, Alzheimer's or your husband's particular life situation, that's already that way. So <clears throat> first and foremost, we need to express a freedom and acceptance with how it actually is right now. And that's modeling freedom for him. And it allows for creative responses you know we might have something to say that will be helpful we might not but even if we have nothing to say or do for that person at least we're not contributing to the suffering by our own suffering I know sometimes we feel like we want people to suffer because we're suffering but nobody who's in a balanced place really wants anybody else to suffer because we're suffering you know we really don't want that Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, Greg. <clears throat> uh, not long ago, someone did something to me that was very painful. And it took a long time for me to get over that. But the process for me involved a determination not to just always, every time I think about that person, think about them with resentment or think about them in a vengeful sort of way. But realizing that I couldn't genuinely do that at that particular moment, that I was really more aware of my pain than I was how am I ever going to do this person. And I guess the other determination was uh, keeping in mind that it's possible I could do this person, even though I had no idea how to do that. Yeah. And so part of the journey for me was um, just instead of going into the story again of how I was wounded and how unfair that was and everything else, um, was to just stop with what I'm feeling when I think of that situation, which is the pain. Yeah. Just being there. And then, you know, inevitably my thoughts would go back to the situation. How did it come about? Why did it happen? And I would think, I would reflect on if I had been in that other person's shoes, what would I have done? Or why would I have done what was done? And eventually realizing that had I been in her situation, I probably would have done much the same thing. And then what I suddenly realized is how painful it must have been for her to do that sensing that pain and so it's, I went from being able to forgive to even empathizing with the pain she must have been going Yeah. To me that was a release. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that, Greg. And one of the things you said right at the beginning that I think is really useful because it's something we can all at least begin with, which is we can express determination by 
not doing something we know is harmful, like going to a particular train of thoughts that we know don't go anywhere, that just all it's going to be doing is constricting our heart, tightening our heart. Why go there? And we can have great confidence. Not that we don't, we may not have great confidence, like to the point where you're at now, where you understand why the person did what they did, how that must have been hurtful for them. We might not be able to go there, but we can know with great certainty that revisiting over and over again resentful thoughts isn't helping us. And and then once we know that, then it's like we can really that great powerful parental energy in us, you know, that like the mother who would run out into the freeway to grab her child, you know, that's in all of us. That like we're not going to let ourselves harm ourselves. But we need that kind of clarity. We need to see clearly how destructive that pattern is before we're willing to <coughs> manifest that kind of power in a moment. Other thoughts? You got a little time left? Yeah, Tom. Um, as you're talking tonight, I'm reminded of my life now is uh, I couldn't ask for you know more lucky you know like realizing impermanence and stuff. It's very good, but there was a lot of years where um, you know I was on drugs, I was depressed, and I, as you're talking about this resoluteness and how you know these, this chance you have in the moment to say, um, and I learned this in different ways different um, psychotherapy like or you know, uh, 12 step program I mean it doesn't have to be this way mm -hmm. it, it can be different and um, how, how depression is so much like if you want to know what practice isn't it's depression yeah. you know you're not just like kind of dipping into your life's experience and saying okay this kind of reminds me of that experience I think I'll kind of absorb into that it's like Oh boy, you're just gonna go grab everything you can think of and just produce a, a, a you know, a document, a docudrama about that moment. It's like that's me. That's that's, that's how it is. Yeah, I, I yeah. suck. Everything's bad. And, you know, every it's, it's amazing how you just that it's, it's the opposite. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the opposite of, of, of that. I had a moment a few weeks ago where my job was very intense stuff going on and I had that old feeling of like where my, my brain almost feels like a sort of like my head just sort of swelling you feel so heavy I mean that's just that awful it's depression or that kind of feeling I thought and so I, just, I tried to sit you know I gave my kids some popcorn <laughs> a movie and I got myself half an hour and I sat and I could just feel I mean the, the power of this practice it's not like um, you know uh it's just so, so, so much of an absence of something, and that the the, uh, the, the it's so quiet that the power of like each time, each time just, you start going that way, it's like no no no, just go back to the breath, think about the breath, and next thing comes up, just that over and over of, and that's you know I don't know this is that that's sort of a, it was an insight for me like okay I just have to do this over and over just keep yeah. going back. Yeah, that's such a beautiful teaching that you just gave about, I mean, you can use different words, but, you know, we're working with the word determination and how it really gets born out of our lived experience. I mean, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is an impersonal force 
that arises from our lived experience. And that's what kind of is willing to pick the mind up and put it down here, and pick it up and put it down there. Yeah. That's a great place to end. Thank you, Tom, for sharing that. We'll just take a minute, let go of the words, take a, a breath or two together. <clears throat> Appreciating the opportunity that our life provides. And finding in our own heart right now a resoluteness to do whatever we can to support the strengthening of wholesome qualities and abandon the unwholesome qualities. and the strength to be patient, and the strength to begin again, and the strength to keep remembering that <clears throat> freedom is possible, regardless of the particular conditions, regardless of how many mistakes have been made in the past, that real love and wisdom and freedom is possible. And so we happily dedicate our lives to this path, no matter how long, no matter how difficult. May each of our lives be part of the stream of causes and conditions leading to happiness and peace and freedom from suffering for all beings without a And thanks again, everyone. Always oh, feels good to be here together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.